Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, January 16th, 2014. You know, I gotta tell you, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, I feel like I'm taking the pirate ship into completely uncharted territory for me. Yeah, hard to believe that, but we're, we're dealing with an issue that predominantly, well, is one of those things that deals with the women folk in the body of Christ. Yeah, details forthwith. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down, stop, and compare with an open Bible by reading God's Word in context to see if the messages that we're hearing from popular pastors, preachers, teachers, and authors actually squares with God's Word. And unfortunately, many times we that you know they don't. Okay, now, like I said at the opening of the program, I, I feel like I'm taking the pirate ship into uncharted territory here, and this is one of those things where I've had to be a quick learn. And um, to say that I'm disturbed by what I'm seeing would be an understatement. Creeped out uh, was is comes closer to it, um, and you know I'm trying to find you know how. To first kind of introduce it, this is kind of one of those programs where I'm definitely going to be introducing somebody whom I will be, um, you know, unfortunately critiquing, uh, you know, in the future. Now, <clears throat> forgive me, but I thought Beth Moore was the queen of uh, all women's Bible studies. Well, it turns out that uh, there's an up-and-coming rising star within kind of the Again, I, I I hate to label it this way, but the only way I can label is this. I'm calling it the mystical estrogen community. And I know that seems derogatory, but I don't know how else to describe it. It's this, it's this really potent, um, overt mysticism, pantheistic mysticism at that, that is... Uh, that is really truly targeted towards uh, uh, the women folk in uh, in Christianity, and it it preys on their emotions. It really exploits them. And I got to tell you, um, just you know, in the last twenty four hours, what I've been exposed to the, the the word that keeps coming to my mind is the word seductive. 
it is seductive in a very, very whoa kind of way. Yeah, I, I don't even have words for it at the moment. I'm, I'm still kind of in reaction mode. So what we're going to be doing on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, we have a few things that uh, we've got to do. And so, you know, the whole thing is themed, uh, you know, for, to what I'm calling mystical estrogen. We're going to kind of start off. Uh, we're going to start off in the deep end a little bit. We're going to come out of the deep end, try to clear our brains a little bit, deal with something a little bit less, um, you know, just that doesn't seem quite as dangerous, but still is an act. It's still within this greater mystical estrogen community. Because what I've really discovered uh, through the help of uh, Vanessa Rassinen uh, of uh, Hearts on Guard is that. There is this online community of Christian women who have really kind of plugged themselves into this, you know, this mystical estrogen experience kind of thing. And one of, you know, one of the symptoms of the of it is we're going to be talking. I'm going to be talking about that with Vanessa Rasison. Um, and that is is that you you get these syrupy and what she describes as cotton candy Christianity positive platitude type stuff. So we'll talk about that, and it won't seem nearly as serious as the first thing I'm going to talk about because I'm going to talk about Ann Voskamp, and um, this is somebody who um, yo know, man. I spent a large amount of time today uh, listening to her audiobook, uh, you know, a thousand gifts. Whew. Oh man, can you say mysticism extraordinaire? Can you say pantheism extraordinaire? I mean, and so what we're going to do today is um, I'm going to kind of issue a a pirate, um, you know, ad- advisory, a, you know, a discernment advisory regarding Anne Voskamp. This is somebody whom I'm convinced, um, you know, having you know listened to the vast majority of her book, A Thousand Gifts, that uh, a discerning Christians really need to take some time and really consider very carefully um you know having Ann Voskamp be somebody who they are allow uh, they allow to speak into their christian theology because her theology is not good and, uh, and I'm going to kind of cut to the chase and I'll be playing a portion of the last chapter of her book which she describes no joke as um as learning how to Make love to God, and this is not good. Um, this is where you take you take sh- type and shadow and turn it into substance. Um, and uh, oh boy, there's a lot of problems here. So, uh, so we're going to start off with an Ann Voskamp update, if you would. That really is going to kind of get you in, you know, mentally prepare you for you know this this what we're going to be doing today. And we're going to be dealing with this erotic mysticism um, that, you know, by the way, you know, this is one of the hallmarks of mysticism and pantheistic mysticism at that, is that um, it eroticizes the relationship with Jesus. And the in the language, you know, just pushes the line to where, you know, as a guy, it just utterly creeps me out because the last thing I want to do is envision Jesus as my bearded girlfriend. And that's what this stuff does. And uh, the way it works, it's women are particularly susceptible for this type of, uh, you know, twisting of Christian spirituality into pantheistic mysticism. And there's this, you know, erotic element in the way I, you know, boy, I hate to put it this way, but as I was uh, preparing for the program today, 
um, just kind of a rule of thumb, okay? If the person you're listening to or getting your spirituality from makes it so you can't tell the you, you can't tell if Jesus is the savior of the world or um, a, a character in the book Fifty Shades of Grey. Um, then you're dealing with erotic pantheistic mysticism and you want to steer clear of that as like as far as the east is from the west. You, you, you get what I'm saying. So um, so we're going to start off with the uh, Ann Voskamp update. I do not have Ann Voskamp update music. I mean this is somebody I'm still you know at the moment getting up to speed on. Um, we'll We'll – Take a breath for a second. We won't go to the break, but we'll take a breath and we'll steer into something that's a little bit less overt because the, you know, the Ann Voskamp thing, you kind of have to you know, clear your head. So we'll clear our head. I'm going to kind of introduce you to the concept of what we're talking about here. I'm going to read uh, Vanessa Rasison's uh, article that I'll be discussing with her and give you an example of what we, her and I are going to be talking about. We'll take a break. When we come back from the break, I'm going to play for you uh, my interview that I recorded earlier with Vanessa Rasison, who has actually come out of this whole online uh, female erotic mysticism, you know, <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, um, you know, thing, estro, you know, mystical estrogen community. She's come out of it. And, um, and you know, she's a confessional Lutheran. And uh, in my co- conversation with her, one of the things that I thought was fascinating is that she she talked about the fact – I don't in fact, I can't remember if this was dur- during or before or after uh, the interview. But uh, um, in talking with her, one of the things she said that was uh, very alarming for her was that she was attending a good church uh, with a pastor who – rightly handles law and gospel, who preaches repentance and the forgiveness of sins, um, you know, rightly administers the sacraments, all this kind of stuff. And her, and her involvement in this mystical estrogen community, which is online, it's this online mystical estrogen community, um, it was undermining and literally, you know, poisoning her faith. And uh, and so she's come out of it, and so she you know kind of knows where the rails are. But this is this is uh, her, her blog is one of those blogs that um, you know you definitely want to monitor because she's asking the right questions. And so you know, and then after that interview, what I'm going to do is we'll take a second break, and when we come back in hour number two, I'm going to review yeah of all things an Ann Voskamp sermon. Uh huh. Yeah, that's right. So you know today's. <laughs> episode again i'm thinking you know i'm going to color it pink and it's going to be mystical estrogen is the name of it so i mean yeah that's all i got to say so um because what you're going to be hearing from ann voskamp is one of those things that if you've never heard this before you could actually break your neck <laughs> i i don't know how else to describe it um i will be uh, issuing the uh, our standard warning today because this is the kind of stuff that you know makes you go what yeah, so here's our warning, and then we'll get into our Ann Voskamp update. Here we go. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. 
drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. All right, you've been warned. And here is Anne Voskamp uh, from Chapter 11 of her book, 1,000 Gifts. And uh, this is uh, from Chapter 11, the beginning of it. Here we go. Chapter 11, The Joy of Intimacy. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. C.S. Lewis I fly to Paris and discover how to make love to God. Yeah, do I really need to comment on that? Because that's taking love towards God and making it into the word eros. Yeah, that's, that, mm-hmm, no. That is not our relationship to God. And, you know, by the way, you, you, you know, marriage does foreshadow typologically our intimacy with God and with Christ, and the body of Christ is referred to as the bride of Christ. But pushing too hard on the type and shadow and making it the reality is one of the errors of mysticism. Now, where is she getting this from? You know, well, I'm going to fast forward a little bit in uh, chapter 11 and let you hear for yourself where she's getting this from. And I've made it so that we can get a little bit of context here. So here's Anne Voskamp again. We're going to kind of parachute into her trip to Paris as she, uh, as she, I think she's going to Notre Dame and uh, she'll explain where she's getting these ideas from. Here we go. It fills all the vaulting space. Their voices echo his love song. Somewhere in the heights, the notes and spirits mingle. Aria ascends and heads they bow, and Linda and I shift for a clearer view into the light of the cathedral. Behind us, a tourist bus grinds down the street, and teens talk on cell phones. All around, screens glow with text messages, digitalized images, bulbs flash. And where the cross beams of the cross-shaped cathedral intersect, at Notre Dame's center, at Paris's center, at my center, on the altar table, I can see it, and the breath lodges hard in the chest. Bread and wine. On the table, in gold chalice, gold cup, gold circling all round, the Eucharist. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. Matthew twenty six twenty six. Now, by the way, I'm going to flesh this out a little bit more during my sermon review from the Ann Voskamp sermon that we're going to be reviewing. Um, she's kind of missing the whole point of the Eucharist, if you would, and making it into something she's got to do rather than something Christ has done for us. And this is, it, you know, it's the proverbial putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable type of problem. But I'm going to, I'm not going <clears> to <throat> spend time fleshing it out here. I'll do this during the sermon review, but we continue. How many miles have I traveled around the spinning planet? And what does God again reveal as preeminent, 
as always the first step of entering in, the thing he can't stop calling me to do. Had I left the farm, left my small world, got on a plane to fly a whole night over watery depths, landed in Paris, the romance of France, traveled, yes, even to one of those thousand places you must see before you die, for God to speak to me the exact same word he had spoken to me back at the farm, had been speaking to me for months, a year and a half now. N Notice direct revelation. That's a major piece of mysticism. Same word. He speaks everywhere. Eucharisteo. In the central nave, the cup is lifted high. And my rusty French can't easily unravel the words. But I'd know that inflection anywhere. That in universal language, language will speak forever in heaven, but could learn already here. Gratitude. Gratitude. Always Eucharisteo. Do I know what this love will really mean? My eyes follow the stone arches rising over us, granite hands clasped in prayers over souls. I think of all who have gone before, the hands of medieval peasants who chiseled the stone under which I now stand. I think of those long-ago believers who had a way of entering into the full life, of finding a passage into God, a historical model of intimacy with God. I lean back to see the spires. Now listen carefully. She's going to give us the source of this so-called historical model of intimacy. Notice she didn't say biblical model of intimacy. That is important. We continue. Think how lives, whole generations, were laid down to build this edifice, to find a way in. But they thought the steps to the God consummation were but three Steps to the God consummation. Notice the <clears throat> erotic undertones, overtones, tones. Now, so what are these three steps to the God consummation? Purgation, illumination, union. Had my own journey of transformation into the full life taken me on the same pilgrimage of the ancients who had built and passed under these stone arches? Ancient whom? Ancient Roman Catholic mystic monks? That's where this comes from. Purgation was the first step toward full life in God, according to the ancients. Purgation was the first step toward you know, full life with God, according to the whom? Not the Bible. According to the ancient. The ancient whom? The ancient Roman Catholic mystic monks. Not according to the Bible, not according to the apostles, not a according to the Orthodox, early, historic, Christian, Catholic, universal, by, I mean by that church, but Roman Catholic mystic monks. She's just calling them ancients. This is majorly problematic. She, in fact, Anne Voskamp here is, seems to me to actually be in a very similar place, quote, spiritually, as Rob Bell. She's kind of like a female version of Rob Bell. Into the chasm separating from God, one prays for divine assistance to purge the soul of self-will. And for me, too, Eucharist Deo had gently slowed me down, opened my hand 
to purge me of my hold, my control on the world. With each gift I had accepted and given thanks for, I let go of my own will and accepted his. But my purgation, this releasing of sin and self, wasn't an act of will or effort. Releasing of sin? What about Christ's death on the cross for our sins? What is this? The act of Christ and his grace all-sufficient. Overwhelming grace drew me to the Christ full of glory, that I might empty of the self. I empty to become full, full of grace. <clears throat> this is mysticism. Um, you know, empty your mind, empty yourself. You know, Buddhism is all about, you know, seeking to meditate to the point where you don't will for anything. Same concept. This is pantheistic, eroticized mysticism under a Christian veneer. But this is not the spirituality taught in Scripture. He lived. Illumination, the intermediary step in the path to full life in God, so said the ancients. The seeker sees. What the ancient saints called a vision of heaven, a way of seeing that draws one closer to God. Ah, Eucharist Deo have been exactly this for me. Opening my eyes to a way of seeing, to a realization that belief is, in essence, a way of the eyes. The one thousand presents wake me to the presence of God. But more so, living Eucharisteo, living in thanks, had done the far harder work of keeping me awake to Him. I began to see that nothing I am counts for anything. But all that I count of Him counts for everything. Seeing eyes might illuminate the glory of Christ in all. I am all I, seeing through life. As glass to God. Union, the medieval Christians thought, was the final and culminating step in the hungry pursuit of the full life. The consummation, if you would. Tickle oneness achieved by only the most devout. Union. Yet don't all the true believers, the ardent seers, have union from the first moment of repentance, becoming one with Christ in his death, burial, and rising from the dead? Union is actually and always the first step of the Christ journey. And yet, attending to grace upon grace, ushers into an ever-deepening union, one we experience on the skin and in the vein, feel in the deep pit of the being, an ever-fuller realization of the Christ communion. Endless Thanksgiving, Eucharisteo, had opened me to this. Okay. That's just kind of a foretaste, if you would, to kind of introduce you to what we're going to be experiencing during our sermon review today. Now, I'm going to do what seems like a, a hard you know, pull on the helm to steer the ship in a different direction. Okay, But I need you to understand this. Everything is actually interconnected today. Everything is interconnected because Anne Voskamp and her followers, many of them are part of this, how do, I don't know how else to put it, you know, a web-based spirituality community of women who try to uplift each other. And Anne Voskamp is, you know, a, a rock star among this particular group of Christian women. 
um, which is actually very alarming to me. But what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read. I'm going to you know, we're going to switch gears. I'm going to read for you a, a portion, if not the whole thing, of Vanessa Rasison's um, article talking about empty, vapid, syrupy, positive platitudes and the the impact that that has and the danger for it. Because I, I want to set you up, and I'm going to give you an example of what it is that she's writing against. We'll take a break, and then we will. I, when we come back from the break, um, I will play for you my interview with Vanessa. And the, you know, the, 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 again, the only way I can say this is is that all of this stuff is interconnected. And if you're a dude, I know it's hard to see. <laughs> I, I had a hard time. It's like I had to be schooled on this. But anyway, so let's do this. Um, you know, since I'm reading a, a blog post, we'll do our normal news music here. From the Hearts on Guard blog, the headline reads, For those weary in discernment. For those weary in discernment. Written by Vanessa. Vanessa writes, she says, I am tired, and while a lot of that could be blamed on first trimester exhaustion and restless sleep, some of it has to do with discernment, some of the discernment is tiring, how wonderful would it be if we could trust anything with the Jesus label on it? How awesomely simple would it be if we can determine truth based on how we feel? Yet it's not that easy. As I've grown in my understanding of Scripture and Lutheran doctrine, I found myself becoming more wary when approaching the Christian writing of others, whether in blog posts, books, or even simple tweets. A red flag automatically raises when words initiate a warm, fuzzy feeling, especially if those words include nothing about Jesus and his death or his resurrection. The thing is, a lot of what is passed around as Christian encouragement these days seems to be a little more than happy platitudes with uh, little, if any, biblical truth behind them. They may be too vague and don't rightly point to law and gospel, or perhaps they're syrupy sweet or maybe even downright false. Yet they get shared, they get retweeted and lauded because they make us feel good. It would be easier to simply read these words, assume the good intentions of those behind them, and do our best to take the good and leave the rest. But false teaching is like the thorns choking out true faith. See Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 through 23. While faith can exist among false teaching, danger still exists. Yet, discernment is tiring, and being on guard for false teaching can be exhausting. But it's worth the alternative of being led astray by eloquent wolves with sweet words and seemingly innocent intentions. False teaching is sneaky and our ears itch to hear what we want. But remember the path walked in true faith. It's not easy, nor is it pain-free, and it does not guarantee riches or good health, and we must not listen to those who offer us rest from the weary task of careful discernment. If we find ourselves weary, let us instead find our rest in Jesus, in word, for he knows we are heavy laden, and he offers to help with our burdens. Let's find our rest in the promise he offers instead of the sugar-coated rainbows too many are hawking. Okay, now, this is the article I'm going to be discussing with Vanessa today. And I want to give you an example of what it is that Vanessa is referring to. Um, This is from a gal. Um, Her name is Holly. And uh, Holly has started putting up videos called Coffee for Your Heart. 
Okay. And this is what Vanessa in part is referring to. And again, all of this is connected um, in very real ways to what I played for you regarding Ann Voskamp and this whole online mystical estrogen community. So here's um, here's Holly Girth, and uh, you know, and, and well-meaning, you know, positive, uplifting video that she's put out on the internet um, called "Coffee for Your Heart," and you can handle whatever happens today. Listen carefully. Uh, here we go. Hey friend, I'm Holly Girth, and I'm so glad we get to have coffee again together this week. Today, I wanted to share something with you. I woke up praying about what I really wanted to say for this week's link up, which was asking, what do you really want people's hearts to hear? And I thought about what my heart needs to hear, and that's to be reminded that no matter what happens today, I'm going to be okay. And I kind of asked God, what's the lie that I'm believing about that? And it felt like he whispered in my heart that I was believing that someday something would happen that I just couldn't handle. And in that moment, I realized that's not true. Because as Philippians 4.13 says, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the truth that came to replace that lie was simply this. There will never be a day in your life that you can't handle because all the days of your life are in God's hands. That reassured me so much, and I just wanted to share it with you, too. So I'm looking forward to reading what you share in the comments in your blog post. I'm so glad you're here. If you're new to this, you can find out more about what's going on at hollygirth.com. All right. So you you got the idea. I mean, it just seems well-meaning. It just seems so positive. Yet there's actually something terribly wrong with this. Terribly wrong with this aside from the fact that Philippians 4.13 was taken out of context and really misapplied um, the advice that she gave you know claiming to have you know been something God laid on her heart to share with everybody else um, because it's not actually what God's word teaches because it is well it's off the mark this is the type of advice that when that day comes when you feel like you can't handle it. It's so bad, so terrible that, you know, you're going to end up questioning your faith rather than questioning Holly Girth when that day comes. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to take our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. On the other side of the break, my interview recorded earlier with Vanessa Rasison of Hearts on Guard to discuss that article I just read about weary about discernment. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Men, this egregious foe has been plaguing the seas for long enough. To arms! Man the battle stations and hoist the colors! Aye, aye, sir. Man the battle stations and hoist the colors! Aye, aye, sir. You heard the man. Get to work. Come on, keep going. The enemy's not going to wait for us. Put your back to your eyes. Come on, get those spiders. And we're out. No warning and no play. Come on, let's get go. Go, go, go. Captain, sir, they're turning to meet us. With this clear weather, we couldn't have had the element of surprise. Well, no matter. We have the wind on our side and our men are ready. We should be pulling up alongside them any minute now. Give me a status report! Sir, the enemy ship has us outgunned by at least three to one. The gunner's mates are reporting that we're running low on gunpowder and half the crew is suffering from Montezuma's revenge. Never fear, my good man, for it says that with God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. If you say so, Captain Furtick. They're now within firing range, Captain. Mr. Smithers! Send them a... Hang on. Let me do this myself. Send them a warning shot off of their port bow. Fire the cannons, I sir! That was merely a warning shot, Captain. They could have very well have hit us. I think they wished for us to surrender to avoid bloodshed. Nonsense! You think we would surrender in our hour of triumph? God has clearly stated that no weapon formed against you will prosper. We can't lose. Let loose the cannons. But but we're not within violence. If I wanted your opinion, I'd have given it to you. I say, fire! I've never seen a warning shot where they used all their cannons before. The blasted fool shot before he was in range. I can only assume that he means to not surrender. Quickly fire a barrage into their port side while they reload. Aye, aye, sir. Fire the cannons! Ha! You call that an attack? I have God on my side. He said this to me. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. 
plans to give you hope in the future. Why, why aren't we firing our cannons? We've now lost half our cannons due to the last attack. Come on, men. We can't lose. Aye, aye, sir. Are they even trying anymore? By all accounts, I believe they are. Let's pull up alongside and see if we can't reason with them. It would be bad form to slaughter them without mercy. Hello, over there! Go away! We have nothing to say to you! I wanted to negotiate the terms of your surrender. My surrender? It is you who will be surrendering to us. What on earth is he talking about, Captain? Maybe he's suffering from malnutrition and heat stroke? No, I, I think he's serious. Now look here. You're outgunned with no way of winning. We wish to show you mercy. No weapon formed against us will prosper. Why is he quoting the Bible? No, a quote would require a context. What he's done is called proof texting. Enough talk, men. Ready? Aim. What was that? I couldn't hear you over the sound of your mass being demolished. But, but, uh, no! In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Oh, would you look at that? Your rudder is gone, too. <clears throat> It'll be a little difficult for you to sail without it, don't you think? I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Is it me? Or is your ship now sinking? Nah, maybe it is me. The God of Peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. If it's all the same to you, I think we've lost this fight. I'm surrendering. Geronimo! Satan's with you. I can't take another minute with this lunatic. Stop it! Stop it right now! All of you come back. We, we, we can't lose. We have... God on our side. We shall prevail. We will. Well, that was surprisingly easy. Makes me wonder how they were even viewed as a threat in the first place. Most inept sailors to ever sail the seven seas. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Mm -mm. 
warning, mysticism, especially of the erotic variety and, well, positive, vapid platitudes, these actually can be very dangerous to your faith. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month. That's it, $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to post office box 508. Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. Okay, moving along, here is my interview from earlier with uh, Vanessa Rasison of the Hearts on Guard uh, blog uh, discussing her uh, blog post entitled For Those Weary in Discernment. I wanted to give her an opportunity to kind of dig, dig a little deeper into what it is that she was going after here uh, in this blog post. And uh, she actually has some very interesting insights to share with us. Here we go. All right. On the line, I have uh, Vanessa Rassinen of the Hearts on Guard blog. And I've invited her on to talk about her blog post entitled For Those Weary in Discernment. Vanessa, thanks for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Thanks, Chris. I'm happy to be here. All right. So the reason I invited you on Fighting for the Faith is because you keep asking the right questions, and you seem to have a particular point of view that, being as the fact that I'm a guy, I don't quite (laughs) get the angle that you work, but every time I read your stuff when you write like this, I'm thinking, man, you're right right on target. And so uh, this blog post that you wrote, For Those Weary in Discernment, uh, you're going after kind of these empty platitudes that that have like no biblical truth behind them that everybody seems to be just sucking up like it's like the next best thing and you just don't think it's the next best thing why well i just feel like our our emotions you know women are just so emotional we're we're much more emotional than men now i I want to make a point here i didn't say that you said that okay i'm saying okay okay um and i really feel like as a woman, we've been, we've really been exploited. That emotionalism has been exploited to where um, you now get this touchy-feely thing being shared around, and women will latch on to that. Uh-huh. You know, our lives aren't easy. We, we all have our problems. Um, and I think we kind of want that comfort, and so we latch on to that. And people have um, pretty much just, just targeted that. And okay. so that's what's selling right now. Okay, so give me some examples of what you're talking about. You don't have to name names, but I mean, you know, the, the, what you describe is this, you know, sugar-coated, vague, syrupy, no law, you know, the, the, no concept of law and gospel. Just these platitudes that seem to be, for whatever reason, aimed specifically at women. And we could talk about women, bi- women's Bible studies in the midst of all of this, and why this is damaging to, uh, you know, women's faith. And may it be undermining uh, the the faith once delivered to the saints. So let's talk about that. So what are you talking about when we talk about these platitudes and and syrupy, sugary, coated, non-biblical sure. stuff here? <laughs> well, so these things really came up, I think, because women out there, as they're blogging, as they're getting out there in social media, 
they're trying to fight this stereotype of women okay. that we're catty, that we're comp- like competing with each other all the time. Mm-hmm. And so there's this move that I saw in blogging that women are really wanting to encourage each other. They're focusing on how do I lift other people up? How do I encourage each other? You know, they don't want to tear other women down. Mm-hmm. So they have this intention of lifting others up, and that's what they're focusing on. So when you do that, and you're focusing all on making other people happy, that's what you're going to give them. And so I think that's where these platitudes come from. We think, how do I want to be encouraged? And you just give them these, you know, God loves you. That's a huge one. Right now, you know, if you're feeling unloved, if you're dealing with insecurity, mm-hmm. that's a huge one you see in blogs everywhere. You see it on Twitter, you see it on Facebook, you see this thing that says, God loves you, you're loved more than you could know. Mm-hmm. And that's not really what we need to hear. Okay, so you're against people saying God loves you, huh? And, and that, well, no, that's not. <laughs> I know see, you're trying to trick me. No, here, but, no, no. I actually, um, I want you, I want you to actually <laughs> spend a little bit of time clarifying that statement because yes. I don't want people to mishear you. No, and that's the thing. I think there's this point where there are truths in the Bible that make us happy. Mm-hmm. You know, we are beloved. We are chosen. We are made righteous. But when you say those things to someone, what is the focus? Mm -hmm. The focus is being put on you. Basically, what you're doing is you're holding up a mirror, Mm -hmm. and you're saying, hey, look, you are made good. You are made holy. You are now wonderful. And those are things to celebrate. Mm -hmm. But when someone's down, or someone's having a hard day, or they're having just a hard month or a hard year, Mm -hmm. do you really want to show them a mirror? That's not really what's going to help them. And um, I think what bothers me most is... Those things can bring comfort for about five seconds. Um, but when, you know, things get really tough, what they really need to hear is the gospel. And when we want to really encourage someone, we want to give them that lasting comfort. Mm-hmm. So we need to be sharing the word. And I wrote a post probably a couple months ago about how we need to say what we mean and say what matters. Because I think what happens is we think Jesus is implied. We put him, we kind of hide him in the lines, and we say, well, of course I meant you are enough in Christ. Mm-hmm. And you're assuming that your listener or your reader is going to just add that on themselves, and they may not. Mm-hmm. But I think like what bothers me the most is that what we're saying isn't what's really important. It uh-huh. might be true, yes, God loves us, right? but that's really not the meat of what we need to be telling people. Let me kind of jump in here a second. Um, yeah. What you seem to be describing to me is kind of like um, uh, 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 in describing a platitude about God loves us. What happens is it's, it's, it's an abstracted kind of love and, exactly. and it's a nonspecific kind of love. You know, whereas Scripture makes it clear that God loves us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. And I, I know what you're talking about. It's it's this this real tendency towards painting a smiley face on everything. Yes. And 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 the the problem is at least in part the way I see it, and I think you kind of you touch on this, is that it, it it's it becomes almost like a grotesque form of graffiti that you're spraying on someone's life or on their face and in the midst of dark circumstances that we all go through these empty abstractions re, that are that kind of play on our emotions 
you, you, at the end of the day, you end up painting a joker face on somebody, and it's really grotesque, and it well, really doesn't help. It's almost help like them. trying – sorry to interrupt you. It's almost like trying to put a rainbow Band-Aid over their pain. Uh-huh. Because, you're, you know, you see your friend hurting, and these are, these are women there. You know, there are those who refuse to believe bad things happen, uh-huh. <laughs> and they, they give you sugar-coated stuff because they think, you know, they, this, they just refuse to see it. Um, but the people who acknowledge your pain and think that the way to help you is to hold up a mirror or to give you some thing they got out of a day-spring greeting card, um, that's not really what I want to hear. And I think a lot of it is um, I've seen some women who um, came out of legalism, uh-huh. and they're they're still hurting from that. You know, they still remember what it was like to be crushed by the law. So they get really kind of timid when you start talking about sin okay, <laughs> or repentance, or you start bringing up the fact that those things are, are actually, you know, you should repent. Um, they... That kind of stuff makes them uneasy, and so they like to just go to that grace happy point <laughs> okay. without talking about why we need the grace, so, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. It, so it's kind of like um, a, a, a gospel reductionism. It's not law and gospel. It's, it's all gospel, all happy, all let's get along, never talk about the negative, and yes. and, um, and that – in a sense, creates its own tyranny. What are the real dangers then that you see that uh, that this constant obsession with only the positive and kind of reducing everything down to the positive and never talking about the negative? Where does that where does that ultimately leave a person? Um, and you know, what is the what, what dangers uh, exist then in in how it can undermine their faith? Well, I think like the biggest one that really bothers me that I keep seeing is is, you know, you can get through anything with God. And you can, you know, they take that idea that, you know, I can do anything because I have faith, uh-huh. um, that all my days I can, I can manage everything because I have faith in Jesus and all that stuff. So when we do that and we give them those happy things, there are going to be times, I mean, we're told this, we, we're going to have trials and tribulations, and sometimes your life is just going to downright suck. And... There will be days when you really don't know how to keep going. And when that happens, if all they've been handed is this happy stuff, they may start to question their faith. And I think the big thing is we'd like to think they'd question the teachers yeah. <laughs> or they'd question all those things they'd heard. Yeah. But that's rarely what happens. Um, I think a lot of times they look at those people that told them those things and they say, but those were good people they meant. They had good intentions, you know. I know that they're they're Christians, and I I trust them. So they don't want to question them. They're going to immediately go inside and question themselves. Yeah. And I think those happy platitudes just set them up um, for that questioning, so that when those hard days come, they don't have the rock of the gospel to fall back on. You've basically built them up on just images of themselves. Yeah. And pointed them back to these these very shaky foundations. Yeah, and then when their whole life falls apart, when you put, give them a mirror, all they're going to see is the destruction. Yeah, and you know those that mirror image. I mean, the problem is these things sound biblical. A lot of times they have scriptural references. We can point to scripture and say, yes, that's where it says that. Hey, look at that. But 
that doesn't mean that's what we should be handing to people when they need support right. and encouragement. Yeah. That shouldn't be the focus. Yeah. Well, you know, by the way, it's not just guys who are or women who are exploited, but it's guys are too. I mean, there's kind of the football version of this is, you know, when I talk about, you know, you, where you see these, you know, people who are, you know, getting ready for a football game and then they're in in the huddle and they're all getting worked up and, you know, and and somebody somebody inevitably shouts out, "Come on, boys, say it." You know, "I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me." And I'm thinking to myself, exactly. "Right. Yeah, that Bible verse was given so that you can defeat your football opponent um yeah know. i don't think so yeah and then what happens if you lose i, I mean well, and, and you know i've seen um places where where people will will refer to god as your cheerleader that yeah. god wants you to succeed in all these things and the horrible horrible prosperity gospel but um you know there was i've just seen these things where people are like oh yeah that's right there's a scripture verse that talks about that and I'm thinking, no, that's not what that meant. Right. <laughs> but I think there's just this, um, there's such a huge flux of teachers now that are popular that, um, and people people say, well, I trust them. Everyone else trusts them. Um, and I see a lot less ability to discern. Yeah. So you see people and they think, oh, well, that person quoted scripture and I can read it. And, hey, I can go and look up, you know, in Strong's Concordance, I can read the Greek. <laughs> I know what I'm doing. And they haven't, you know, they're not really discerning what they're reading or right. what they're hearing. So yeah. I kind of feel like that's being exploited, too. But um, So so the, the people out there who are purveying in these platitudes, I, I tried to come up with another P word so that I get that alliteration <laughs> in there, but it didn't work. But uh, the people who are purveying in these uh, these positive platitudes, there it is. Okay, so purveyors yeah. <laughs> of positive platitudes, they are they're the ones who are well, let's say benefiting. You know, large audiences selling books and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's as if they're basically selling people a bag with nothing in it. Because when when life really throws real situations at them, there's real suffering, there's real disappointment, there's real failure. These platitudes cannot comfort. Yeah, and I, I actually, um, a few months ago, a friend of mine, um, we talked about this being cotton candy Christianity. Okay. That it's all fluff, and that it dissolves as soon as you're given it. You know, you get this, this happy saying, but as soon as it comforts you, it's gone. Hmm. So it's, I think cotton candy is a great way to put it. <laughs> okay, so cotton candy Christianity, <laughs> see that works. I heard too. you also called it marshmallows. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's it, it, so. There, and, and this is where where people it, 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 they will mishear what you're saying here because well, what's wrong with being positive? What's wrong with uplifting people? There's absolutely nothing wrong. I mean, First Thessalonians were told we're to encourage, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's good to encourage each other. The thing is, we need to learn. How should we encourage? Okay, so what's the solution to this? I mean, you know, rather than the the, the vapid, uh, positive pl platitudes that have nothing to it, what, I mean, what, you know, what would you, what do you think is a, a far more biblical and Christian way for us to encourage each other, for women to encourage women, and, and, and for us to encourage people in a way that will give them something solid that they can hang in, hang on to during life's uh, complete, you know, radical swings and changes that it throws at you. Well, I think the big thing is we really need to not feel like we can't talk about 
Jesus and his crucifixion and his resurrection as, like, too much. We can't do that too much. And that's really the message that we need to be giving, because when you need encouragement, everything there in the Word is what you need. So you don't need a happy platitude. I think, and I've seen people on Twitter who are able, I don't know how, because I'm not that, you know, good with words, but they can do law and gospel wonderfully in 140 characters. It's it's hard, but it can be done. I think we need to get back to how do we share the gospel with people, and it's always through the Word, Mm -hmm. and I think we need to get back to that. Um, I think it's also good to remember that these people, like, there are those who are selling books and making lots of money off of it, and they're exploiting this. There are some that I think don't realize they're doing this, Hmm. that I think they're really, they have this desire to help women, and they're doing this not to write books, but they're really just wanting to connect. Um, I've seen this in the blogging world um, where it's so heartfelt. You know, I've met some of these people, and they just, they love these women, and they want to help them. I think they're just missing it just a little bit, that they're just not getting the message quite right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for them, like for the people who are wanting to encourage the bloggers out there, I want to get back to that point I was making that we need to say what we mean and we want to say what matters. So we don't want to imply, we don't want to ever assume our readers know that we're pointing them to Jesus. Mm. (laughs) We shouldn't be afraid to always have him front and center, you know? Right. Um, And I think there's this kind of weird thing where we don't don't want to. I don't know if it's because we don't want to offend people or we just figure, well, everyone knows that that's what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But... Um, for the readers, though, like that are reading these platitudes and everything, I think we really need to encourage discernment. Mm. Um, there's a lot of stuff that it sounds happy, it sounds biblical, and it gets shared immediately without much thought. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think there needs to be more encouragement for people to really get into the Word and be talking to their pastors. And if they're not sure about something that they read, you know, don't share it <laughs> if you're not sure. Yeah. You should be taking it to someone you trust to go over it. So it's it's this happy platitude spamming then, uh, you know, on social media. But I've, Oh, it's horrible. It, but I've also noticed that if you dare to actually say anything even remotely considered to be backhanded against something like that, um, you could people can come down on you like a ton of bricks. They did. <laughs> um when I first, because um, I used to be a closet Lutheran on my blog, <laughs> so um, I was very active in the evangelical blogging community. Uh-huh. Um, I still have some friends there. Um, some don't talk to me anymore. <laughs> but when I came out with this, I had a post that said, you know, we need to find a better way to encourage. That, And I, I wrote a post specifically against this, and some people really took offense telling me that I was denying the fact that I was made holy and that I was denying all these good things that is said about me in the Bible. And my point was, I'm not denying it. I'm just saying, let's not focus on it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Does that make sense? I mean, like, they're telling me I'm supposed to celebrate the fact that I'm holy and righteous. And I'm saying, no, let's celebrate Jesus because he's much more important than me. Right. Now, I, I see kind of a variant of the same theme where 
Um, tell me if you've ever seen this before where I've seen women encouraged by other women to, to say things like, uh, to declare over yourself that I am a daughter of the king, that yes. I, I am a princess. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, no. Okay, so um, a couple months ago, I was, I was in a really bad state where I was, like, ugly crying in the drive-thru of Taco John's. Um, it was bad. And I was, I was convinced, you know, this is one of those things where I'm, I've been going to an LCMS church but when you're surrounded by other teaching, it kind of seeps in. Uh-huh. So I was convinced I wasn't following God's plan for my life, and I was just down in the dumps, crying, freaking out, wanting to destroy the blog and stop writing altogether. And I had friends telling me, you know, you are the daughter of the king, and that's what you need to focus on. <laughs> well, that helped for like five seconds. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it is this, there's this video that I, I actually sent to Rev Fisk, uh-huh. For worldview everlasting that he did, I actually felt bad <laughs> for sending it to him after realizing how much it tortured him. Um, where that is all that they talk about is how we're celebrated. We're the daughter of the king, and we're wonderful and amazing. And the thing is, that may be true, I guess. I mean, the the problem is when you do that, it almost you you start this thing going on in someone's head where their old Adam will take over and start believing that they actually deserved that. Right. Or that it's because of anything they did. And that's not at all. You know, we didn't deserve his love or deserve anything. Um, but when you focus all on yourself or all on that person, that old Adam's going to take over every time. Right. Well, I think it's also mixed with a really bad theology that has this idea that somehow we create the future by our words or our attitude. Oh, yeah. And, and all that kind of stuff. So, so you're, what you're saying is is that you're not known for putting on a tiara, standing in front of a mirror, and telling, saying, I'm a daughter of the king. Uh, no, I would never do that. Okay, I, I'm glad that I we... don't own a tiara. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that it almost makes me feel uncomfortable to have that, you know, because to me, I think of myself and I look at myself and I think, look at all this stuff that I do and all the crap that I think and all the bad things that just come from me. Like, I don't want to focus on, I feel like if I'm going to sit there and say, I'm the daughter of a king, it's kind of like I'm fooling myself. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I just, I notice that there's just, it's not even an undercurrent anymore. It's become like a major flow in the, in the, in the mainstream of evangelicalism, this, this self-obsessed, you know, declare over yourself, you know, I am wonderful, I am wise, well, it, I, I'm a child of the king, I am all this and I'm all that, and it's just... I think it also, I mean, you see it a lot for, for these bloggers who are, you know, stay-at-home moms, or um, I, I find it to be, you almost start telling people, you know, no matter what you do, no matter what your, your job, no matter um, anything, you are awesome, and you are great, and you are wonderful, and as Rev Fisk said in his review of that, he said, you know, that no, don't point me to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not all those things. Um, so what you're saying is you need to hear that you're forgiven, that you're died for. Absolutely. That, you know, that Christ bled and died for you. Well, see, because when I'm having a hard day, <laughs> the last thing I want is for someone to tell me, no, look, you're good. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not good. Like, don't point me back at myself. When I'm having that hard day, you know, where I want to be 
is at the altar, <laughs> you know, receiving receiving the Lord's Supper. That's really where I feel all of that weight lifted. Right. Um, it's. I just think that we've gotten to this point where we're afraid to point people to Jesus, and I I, I don't want that to come out wrong, but it almost seems like people don't want to talk about his his death and resurrection. Yeah. Like it's assumed everybody knows he died and he was raised. Um, so we don't need to focus on it. I kind of get that feeling from this new, I don't know what you would call it, <laughs> new trend Yeah. among women. Okay. I think it's just, you know, they notice that all these women are having low self-esteem issues, and we're all comparing Pinterest did a huge blow to women everywhere, apparently. <laughs> and now... <laughs> okay, I'm unaware of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, if you ever read women's blogs, um, there are many out there that say, stop comparing yourself to the women on Pinterest because, you know, you're not going to be able to make all those pretty crafts and your birthday parties probably aren't going to look that perfect. So you get all these things, uh, these blog posts out there that say, it's okay that you aren't like that other woman. <laughs> and I think that's where this is coming from. There's been a lot of low self-esteem and just people down on themselves because they can't live up to this social media expectations. Um, and I think that's really where all of this came from. Okay. Oh, wow. I know. As a, as a man, you probably aren't aware of all of that. <laughs> <laughs> you mean you're not on Pinterest, like, checking what? out birthday party designs? and No. <laughs> <laughs> like how you can take a wood palette and change it into a bookcase. No. Yeah, I'm not either. Yeah, <laughs> I was blissfully unaware <laughs> until you mentioned it. Yeah, no, these women spend hours on Pinterest, and then they they walk away feeling bad because their house isn't as pretty as the one they just pinned. Okay, so and what so we're talking about... come around saying, no, it's okay that your house is a mess. Mine is too. Okay, so... We're we... all daughters of the king. It's okay that the dishes are piled up. And that's what you're seeing on blogs now. I got it. Okay, so what we're what we're really describing? Let's let's call the thing what it really is. What you've just described <laughs> to me is a breaking of like the ninth and tenth tenth commandments, like on a grand scale. You know, you know, <laughs> you know, coveting taken to you know some yes. bizarre level. Okay, so we're we're talking about coveting your neighbor's um, Pinterest. Uh, craftiness, right? And not even that. You might be coveting the fact that that other woman's kids are well-behaved in church. <laughs> right. Uh, um, there's just this comparison thing, and so there's this big move to tell women, don't compare yourselves to somebody else. We're all daughters of the king. Rather than saying, listen, you're guilty of the sin of coveting. You need, yeah. You need to repent. Christ <laughs> died for this. Be no, forgiven. No, they're saying you're good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Now, see, now... Or Telling you just stop, stop sinning is basically what they're saying. All these blog posts say stop <laughs> comparing. Yeah. When really you can't stop comparing. We can't stop sinning. All we can do is repent and be forgiven. Yeah. Maybe I need to write a blog post about. That. I I I I'm hoping that the spark of creativity has just occurred. <laughs> okay. I don't know how many of my readers are, you know, Pinterest using compare people, but. Okay. Maybe. All right. So, it, so I now I, as a as a theologian and apologist, I get it. What you've described is a complete flagrant sinning of coveting, and all of the depression and you know, sulkiness that goes along with that particular sin. Yeah, and it's not even just Pinterest. I mean, especially in the blog community, you have these women who start blogs, and um, it's 
we don't really compete with each other, but you, you see someone else who's been blogging the same amount of time, and you think, why do they have so many more readers than me? And you start coveting other people's blogs. You start coveting, you know, their design or, you know, how do they get those sponsorships and how do they do all this? And that's another big thing. You see a lot of blog posts out there telling women, stop comparing yourself to other bloggers. Wow. <laughs> it's huge. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, it, you know, if I could find a biblical story that I could compare this sin to, it reminds me of uh, Ahab and Jezebel. And Jezebel... Um, she was very, very comforting to her husband. Her, um, her husband was lusting and coveting an, a vineyard that he couldn't get and couldn't get the guy to sell it to him. Uh, Naboth was his name. And so, mm-hmm. you know, he was just depressed and sullen and upset and sad because, you know, it was like the perfect Pinterest of, of vineyard. And then um, uh, <laughs> she came up with this great idea and had him accused of blasphemy and he was and and Naboth was stoned unjustly and killed, and then of course, then the vineyard was given to her husband and what you're describing here is a species of that kind of sin you know yeah. it's in the same family, and the solution is just stop yeah, exactly that's what they're telling everybody and now you do see that a lot from non christian bloggers, so it's not I'm not saying the Christian bloggers are doing that necessarily, although they do um, but I really, it gets sad when you start seeing Christian bloggers telling others, just stop comparing. (laughs) Just stop doing it. You just don't need to. Right. And all the while, that that probably is just making it worse. Yeah. I mean, there's no way. The answer to that is not just stop. Who can stop sinning? Right. Yeah. The the answer is repent. (laughs) Confess it as for what it is. I mean, and the answer, sometimes they tell you, um, the answer is get rid of your social media. Because uh, you can't covet if you're not looking at it. And it's like, <laughs> oh, okay, um, that lasts for all of like two seconds. Yeah, but, and that didn't actually address the root problem there. Right, um, they're yeah. just sticking Band-Aids on everything. Right, the sin has, like, the cat, the cow is out of the barn. The sin has occurred, <laughs> and you're just telling me, oh, just to throw it under the rug. Yeah, pretty much. Got it, okay. I think a lot of times, you know, we, we look out at that, you know, the Lutherans see this <laughs> in the evangelical world, and we're like, why do they do that? Um and I think a lot of it, you, you see it, people think, well, these people just don't believe in sin or they don't believe in, in bad things happening. But that's not the case. They know these bad things are happening. They just don't have the right answer to it. They're not giving the right answer to it. They probably know the answer. Okay. At least I'd like to think they know the answer. So <laughs> That's just not what they're focusing so on. So the cotton candy Christianity and the, and the positive platitudes and all of that, <laughs> this is really, in effect, a, a placebo designed to, to cure an illness. I think so. Yeah, but it's... I really think it's, you know, they're seeing the sin of these women that are, you know, they're feeling down. And why are they feeling down? They're feeling down because they're sinners. Yeah. <laughs> and instead of giving them the cure to that, we're, we're patching them up with unicorns and rainbow band-aids. And tiaras and saying that exactly, I'm a... Exactly, and a mirror. Right. A nice gold gilded mirror. Yeah, and ultimately that's not going to help them at all. It, in not fact, at all. It's going to leave them in bondage to that sin, and they won't ever really be set free from it. Yeah, I mean, when I was... When I was wrapped full of band-aids you know people were slapping those on me during my hard times in blogging world i was comparing myself to everybody i was coveting everyone when i first started and i mean it's hard being a blogger i mean it looks nice and fun (laughs) 
to just write things out, but, you know, you kind of get sad when no one comments and um, you think no one's reading. But, <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, must, I was covered I must be in these band but, like, you know, I didn't really start to feel better until, actually, it was when I read Broken, and I started seeing all the issues right. <laughs> with what I was being told. Yeah. And that was really when I said, okay, when I'm feeling down like this, what do I need to do? I need to go back and repent and be forgiven. Yep. That's... I don't need cotton candy. Although, you know, someone's going to give you lots of cotton candy or you're going to say no. Most <laughs> people won't. Yeah. Well, it tastes good. Although yeah. I don't really like cotton candy. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. No, I, I get what you're saying. I think you're making some valid points. Although I don't understand the part about like, wanting comments on blog posts. I My blog posts lately, <laughs> I can't, I don't have time for comments. Well, it's okay. Like, so I, I turn them off. <laughs> I like, you know, it's just, it's interesting because when I was a more evangelical blogger, I had a lot more comments, um, but they were all like, oh, I loved your post. Yeah. <laughs> um, now I don't get too many, but the ones I do get are actually substantial yeah. and have something to say, so. And it may be, not, may not saying anything bad about the people who used to comment on my blog. Right. It, it may be that uh, they're, they're responding in kind because, you know, the blog posts I've read from you lately... Um, have really, you know, hit the mark, and you're dealing with with some issues very substantively and asking the right questions. Well, Vanessa, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, come on Fighting for the Faith and discuss this issue and help keep me apprised as to how kind of the feminine evangelical world operates and where some of its weaknesses are and how it may be applying the wrong solution to a very deadly problem. Thanks for having me, Chris. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. Our first ever Ann Voskamp sermon review. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. No, seriously. Starfleet wouldn't have lasted two minutes against the Death Star. Say what you want, dude. Why can't you admit that Star Trek created proton torpedoes first? So what are you saying? Without proton torpedoes, Luke Skywalker would never have been able to destroy the Death Star in the first place. Nuh-uh, bro. He had the Force. You mean metachlorians? That never happened. Those movies were just bad fanfics. Have you two seen any Daleks around here? Uh, no. That's funny. We just picked up a distress signal and decided to check it out. Well, we haven't seen any... Come on, you two! Get in! Run!
fear nerds of the world. It doesn't matter whether you're into Star Wars, Star Trek, or Doctor Who. Think Geek has something for almost every fandom around. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. I want to give you an idea of what Ann Voskamp does with Scripture. And you need to hear it from her, because if I told you this is what she was doing, you may not believe me. But if you listen to her doing it, you'll get what I'm saying. But let's do this right. Good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Lakeshore St. Andrew's Church in Tecumseh, Ontario, Canada, and Voskamp presiding. The name of the sermon is entitled Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. That's what it's entitled. And the best thing I can do is just warn you that what we're dealing with here is some pretty serious hermeneutical problems mixed with pantheistic, estrogen-filled mysticism. That's the only way I can describe it. But let me go ahead and kill the music so we can get right to it. Here is Anne Voskamp and Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Here we go. My own journey through the wall to burn down the wall has been this circuitous route. My name is Anne. It means full of grace, and I haven't been. My very first memory is the year I turned four. I stood in our farmyard and watched my little sister Amy toddle out after a cat and be crushed by a truck was driving through our yard. That's my first memory, is watching her bleed away. Now, Anne has a, a gift for storytelling. She really does. She's very descriptive in her language, and she engages you on a level that really, like from the word go, tugs on your heartstrings. And this is absolutely a tragic uh, memory that she uh, is talking about and carries with her. I get that, but well, and it's, it's well, what she does with her Bible twisting, you actually kind of know need to know a little bit of hermeneutics in order to understand what she ends up doing. But we, she hasn't gotten to a text yet, so let's continue. That's the moment the cosmos shifted for us. That's the moment our hands snapped closed. 
to any notion of grace. That's the moment we hit a wall. Right from the beginning, fears have formed me, not gratitude for gifts. It's not my default to give thanks at all. The year I was seven, I was hospitalized. Dr. Munn told my mama that I was so scared of what was happening in the world, in my world, that I had an ulcer. By the time I was 20, the anxiety is so wild, I was battling full-blown anxiety attacks. The corner of Jane and Finch, I was going to University, York, Toronto. A doctor put me on medication for agoraphobia. Agoraphobia, which is that anxiety of being in places or situations from which escape might be difficult. Sort of like a stage <laughs> that you can't get off. That is a sense of humor. Long years after my baptism, at 16 through my teen years, so many times just going out to the garage with a glass, a jar, just dropping it over concrete to hear those shards all shatter across the concrete seem to break something numb and hard like a wall in me. I'd finger along for the sharpest piece of glass and cut myself. Sometimes you just want to escape out of yourself. Sometimes emotional health eludes you. Sometimes you just like to get through the wall someplace a lot better than where you're at. The wall you keep hitting up against. You do anything to walk through. What are you facing right now? Financial pressures. Family situations. Diagnosis. Parts of you that hurt so bad you just numbed yourself right off so it doesn't hurt anymore. Places that you've just walled off. You put a smile on in the foyer. Thumbs up, it's all going great. You're just going through the motions. How in the world do we live in this world with our hands open to receive grace, to receive gifts, and what God gives may not feel like a gift, may not feel good at all. Matthew 26, 27. Our Lord and Savior, when he's facing the cross, when he's facing the most excruciating, difficult, black, dark, what does Christ do? Okay, now, before she gets to this text, we got to apply some really good hermeneutics here, okay? There is a theology that goes along with the Lord's Supper, okay? The theology that she's going to give here is nowhere expressed in Scripture. And what she's going to do is she's going to take a descriptive text and find a prescription in it, a prescription that that nowhere exists in any of the didactic uh, teaching portions of Scripture. 
Um, and when it comes to the Lord's Supper, um, nowhere is this prescription that she's going to find ever fleshed out. And so as a result of it, she's going to come up with kind of a unique way of, of finding an emphasis regarding the Lord's Supper. And the emphasis has and puts everything back on her, puts it back on you rather than on Christ. It's subtle. It's seductive, very easy to miss. That's why I'm pointing it out ahead of time. Bibles, Matthew 26. It's the Last Supper. Verse 26. Jesus answered, You've said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. He gave it to them. In the original biblical Greek language, he gave thanks, reads Eucharisteo. Okay. <clears throat> now, I don't think she knows Greek, but we'll go with her Eucharisteo. Um, and again, here's the problem. She's reading the narrative of the Last Supper. And notice the emphasis that she's putting on it. Jesus gave thanks right before he's about ready to face his Quote, darkest moment. Hey, um, <clears throat> remember Jesus' words after he gave thanks. Take, eat, this is my body, broken for you. Then he takes the cup, and when he had given thanks, gives it to them, saying, Take, drink, this is the my blood of the new covenant, shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Yes, Jesus did give thanks, but that's not the emphasis that we're supposed to be focusing on in the Lord's Supper, because there he gives himself, his body and his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. This is what the text says. The emphasis is on Christ and what he's doing for the forgiveness of our sins. It's gift. And so what she sees in this is, well, just like Jesus Eucharisteoed before the cross, now I must Eucharisteo. I, I've got to give thanks uh, and you know, all that kind of stuff. Missing the broken and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins part. She's teasing out the description of Jesus giving thanks and seeing in it a prescription that basically holds a mirror up to her face and mine and yours and has us missing Jesus giving his body and blood for the forgiveness of our sins. The root word of Eucharisteo is charos. It means grace. Jesus took the cup, the cup of his suffering, and named it grace. 
and gave thanks for Eucharist Deo. Yeah, no, actually, just because their Eucharist is part of Eucharist Deo doesn't mean that Jesus named the cup grace. Yeah, yeah, you're playing fast and loose with biblical terminology here. Not good. She's going to commit some other major hermeneutical errors along the way. We continue. Eucharisteo envelops charas, but it also envelops kara, joy. Deep kara joy is found in the cup of Eucharisteo, thanksgiving. Take everything as grace, give thanks for it, and therein is joy. See what she did there? Take everything as thank, uh, as grace, give thanks, and then there is joy. All from the fact that the word eucharisteo occurs in Matthew 26. She's basically used that word to pour all kinds of theological meaning into it that's that's not meant by the way that word occurs in that context and is basically smuggling a new theology by cramming it into that one word. Yeah, this is a twisting, a very subtle, very dangerous twisting of God's word. As long as thanks to God is possible, then joy to God is always possible. Notice, this is something you've got to do then so that you can have joy. This is works. This is law. Yet the passage that this is from is all gospel. My journey through the wall and all that was keeping myself walled off from God's love. It began in that word, Eucharistale. It began on a morning in November, before Christmas, that list season. And so here we go, autobiography being smuggled in as theology. You've got lists of projects you have to make, and projects you need to get supplies for, and gifts you have to make, and gifts you have to buy. When I'm on my email, dashed up a dare. A note from a friend daring me. Could I go ahead and write a list of a thousand things I loved? I'm thinking, right, like, as in begin another list. <laughs> so I grabbed a pen, a scrap piece of paper, and a whim on a dare. I wrote it down. One thousand gift lists. Not of gifts I want, but of gifts I already have. Common grace. Thanking God for number one, morning shadows across old floors. Two, jam piled high on toast. Three, cry of blue jay from high in the spruce. Writing it down in a journal, just like all your pictures here surrounding the sanctuary. Just little snapshots of God's glory, of God's love for me, for you. Christ, present with us, giving out of the overflow of his heart. Slowing down in the midst of our lives. Crazy kids, loud kids, piano lessons, piles of laundry, stacks of dishes, basketball practice, all this rat race pressing, stopping, and getting more. Life is not 
an emergency. Life is all these frames of a giver who can't stop giving to you. Life is a gift. This journey through the wall for me began as a journey of thanking God in all. Sometimes that you don't know that you can walk right through that wall in your life just by taking one step of obedience. One step of obedience is all it takes to find the door in the wall. One step of obedience. Huh. Wow. Um, <clears throat> we've got a problem here, folks. We're talking about a mystical form of self-righteousness here. This is a, a very big problem. In everything... What does he say? Give thanks because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That step of obedience to give thanks in everything, for everything. That's how he opened the door for me through everything. To step into his presence. Enter into his presence for there in his fullness of joy. The only way into his presence is through those gates of thanksgiving. The only way into his presence is through the gates of thanksgiving, which is a step of obedience. This isn't salvation by grace alone, folks. This is something different. Look what happens in Luke 17. Luke 17. It's the story of the lepers. Yes, it is, and she's going to commit a uh, hermeneutical fallacy, by the way, folks. I'll have to explain it to you before we get to it. The hermeneutical fallacy she's going to commit is a, is a fallacy called illegitimate totality transfer. Yes, it actually has a technical name. And here's the idea. You take a word from a biblical text and you pour every single possible meaning for that word into the instance in which it appears. Nobody does this, by the way. We don't, we do not do this in normal language. So you have this big, basically great big snowball word with this huge mega definition, um, which is not the way it was intended to be used in the context in which it appears. Now, many words that we, uh, we work with <clears throat> have multiple definitions. You know, for instance, you have the word up, okay? Take the word up, you you look up, and that means you're looking higher. Or you can say you woke up, that means you, you know, that, you know, I got up out of bed, you know, that means so you got out of bed. You know, the word up has all of these different meanings, but nobody puts every single meaning into the word up every time it shows up. That would be called illegitimate totality transfer. Well, this is what Anne's going to do with the word sozo. Pay attention and watch what she's going to do here. She's going to pour every single meaning, potential meaning into it so that she can make it so that it's saying something different than what it says in the text that she's supposedly reading from. Here we go. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Sounds like hitting a wall. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. 
He was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, we're not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Wait, Jesus had already made him well, had already healed him of leprosy. That was. Yeah, um, has made you. Um, that's past tense. Issue. So, what's going on here? That word well, your faith has made you well. That word in the Greek is sozo. It literally means saved. Yes, that's one of its definitions. Watch what she does here. It's illegitimate totality transfer. She's now going to pour every potential meaning into the word sozo so that it doesn't mean what it means, what it really does mean in the context in which it's appearing. It means true wellness, wholeness, emotional, spiritual wellness. To live so-so, to live the well, healthy, fullest life. When did the leper receive so-so? Um, he received his healing while he was on his way to show himself. You know, again, um, this is pretty basic stuff. You don't know Greek. It's clear that you do not know Greek, or nor have you taken any real hermeneutics classes, because what you're doing with this test, text is twisting it. Got healed from the leprosy? He was saved to the fullest, wellest, healthy, emotional, spiritual, whole life when he returned and gave thanks to Christ. The one step of obedience that's necessary, right? The thanksgiving to the Lord that brought him into emotional wholeness, spiritual health. Again, the one step of obedience. That's the context of what she's saying here. Weakness. Eucharisteo sozo. Give thanks in all things. All the ways his passion pursues you, numbering them. Thanks for the passion of that cross. His mercies new every morning to live in a stance of plastering that cross with all your thanksgiving. Thanks for the sunrise and the grace of a new week and morning doves outside the window and breath in the lung and beat in the heart at this moment in time. It's all a gift from his heart. Woman named Vivian, his husband left her and her daughters for his pregnant girlfriend. She tells me that she's living Second Chronicles 2020. When Jehoshaphat was overwhelmed by an army coming up against him. And, he and now we have narcissistic eisegesis, an allegorizing of a historical narrative in the Old Testament. I mean, it's serious. I mean, this is some very skillful... Um, Bible twisting here, uh, different hermeneutical errors, um, all in the same sermon. Uh, this is, wow. know what to do. And he goes up to the temple and he says to the Lord, we don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. And when that army comes, he doesn't send out another army. He sends out a choir 
to sing give thanks to the Lord. His love endures forever. Does that sound like a battle plan to you? Vivian says, that's my battle plan. To pick up a pen like a sword and give thanks to God. His love endures forever. To count 1,000 gifts, eucharisteo, sozo, to stay well and whole, eyes fixed on the giver, who's using all things to shape us more into the image of Christ. It's all a gift. God tells us to give thanks in everything because he knows this is the only way to live through anything. Because you know he's for you and not against you. He's refining you and purifying you, making you whole. The only thing that can change us, that can change now, the weird part about this is the cross so far has the, the it's only been mentioned because at this particular church, um, St. Luke's um, out there in Tecumseh, Ontario, Canada, or Lakeshore, sorry, Lakeshore St. Andrews, sorry, Lakeshore St. Andrews, uh, they've got a cross up and they've put all kinds of photographs and, and things like that on the cross. That's the only mention of it. But Notice again, she talks about, you know, keeping our eyes on Jesus, but for what? That he's for us and not against us, which is an abstraction, taking a biblical passage out of context. I can say this from Scripture, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. We're not hearing that. We're hearing about ourselves and our one step of obedience, Eucharisteo, so that we can experience wholeness, sozo. And in each, you know, and this has all been gleaned from passages ripped from context using different hermeneutical twisting techniques. Uh, unbelievable. This world is to know, not mentally, not cerebrally, but to know in your heart and in your veins how he loves you. And when you know down here how he loves you, how wildly and fully and passionately and completely he loves you, you start... No, no, how wildly, completely and passionately. All terms used in guy-girl love relationships, okay? Not he demonstrates his love for us in that while we were at sinners, Christ died for our sins. Oh, no, he's passionately pursuing and in his heart loving you. Again, kind of a you know, mystical, romantic, eros kind of thing going on here. Wildly, fully, passionately, completely love the world. Out of my Eucharisteo story, out of my Sozo story. September 2010, this crazy guy up here with the hair and the glasses and the boots, he invited me to go on a Compassion's bloggers trip to Guatemala City. This is before 1,000 Gifts was published. Took us to Guatemala City dump where thousands of families live in rotting refuse that the farmer wouldn't put his pigs into. Digging for something to chew on. 
families living in the stench of decay and death that was absolutely overwhelming. And the vultures just kept circling over top of these little kids, looking like my kids, looking for something to eat. We stood on the edge of the dump, my stomach literally nauseated. We stood there with Pastor Saul. He's the pastor of the local church who was bringing the compassion program to the children at the dump. A small church of only 120 members offering meals and Bible classes and the compassion program to 80 compassion children who made their home in garbage. To children who needed water, who needed education, who needed to have walls of oppression and hopelessness and lovelessness broken down, who needed to find physical, spiritual, and emotional health. Who needed to look for hope and more than rat-infested, maggot-crawling garbage. Pastor Saul, he turns to me and he says, I reach out to all of these people because when I was a teenager, I found God. He said, I passed this billboard, and it made me think. It made me pick up my Bible and start reading, starting in the book of Proverbs. And I stood beside Sean, and I asked Pastor Saul. He said, his name was Saul, but not Saul the crazy one. He said, what did the billboard say, Saul? What are answers in places like dumps? What do signs say when you need signs? Pastor Saul said, the billboard said, God is love. Now experience it. His eyes were brimming. God is love. Now experience it. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. One of those statements is an abstraction with a command that doesn't make any sense. The other is actually good news. Do you know the difference between the two? God is love even here. Now experience it. If you experience his love, all these pictures around the sanctuary, if you experience his love, his grace. How? How do I experience it? If it jolts you and gets in your veins... If you've touched it and tasted it and given thanks for it and known it, you can't be unmoved. You can't sit passive anymore. If you've really experienced God's love, it's like getting electrified. The experience of his love is like electricity in your veins. Okay, so it's like sticking your finger into a light socket. Uh Uh-huh. Do you have a passage for this, please? can't help but be moved to reach out, do something, act. What's all the saying, God is love, now experience it. The essence of counting 1,000 gifts. Um, no, it's actually the, es- the essence of bondage to a commandment that's not even in the Bible. God is love, now go and experience it. Oh, great. Now, what if I haven't experienced it? Am I not saved? If I haven't experienced it, then then it's not possible for me to go and preach the gospel 
to call people to repentant faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins? What do you mean by experience it? And comparing it to being electrified doesn't really help me because most people who are electrified need to go to the hospital or they're dead. No, it's my experiencing it. It's always been the answer to every question in life. To not only know of God's love, to not only believe in God's love, but to experience it, live in it, walk in it, give it. You haven't really experienced it unless you are expressing it. You can see the expression of it all around here in your pictures. It overflows out of the If I'm going to express God's love, I'm going to say things like, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. Because God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might be the righteousness of God. If I'm going to express the love of God, I'm going to say, take, eat, this is the body of Christ broken for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Or I'll take him to a passage that says something like this, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. You know, things like that. And by his stripes, we're healed. I'll talk about what Christ has done for us. Actually preach the cross rather than abstract the cross and turn it into something that it isn't. Those kids back there on the table. Kids who are living in dumps. The love from here overflows and reaches them. A hot day in Guatemala City, standing beside John. That's how my passion turned to compassion. And Pastor Saul looked us in the eyes. Kids there rifting through garbage heaps looking for food. He said, I do all this because he who has been loved much serves much. And that sounds like scripture, but the scripture passage is he who has been forgiven much loves much. That's what the Bible says. You familiar with the story of of the woman who busted in, you know, broke, you know, basically crashed the party that Jesus Jesus was at the Simon the Pharisee's house, and this woman crashed the party and she comes and she weeps and with her tears she washes Christ's feet and with her hair dries his feet and of course Simon you know the Pharisee was indignant if if Jesus were truly a man of God he would know that that woman was a sinner And then Jesus tells this wonderful little parable, little tale, kind of in the form of a challenge question, if you would, to the Pharisee. And he says to him, two two men owed a moneylender, you know, know, different amounts of money. One a huge amount and the other, you know, not that, you know, just not that huge. But neither of them could pay. Great line. Neither of them can pay. You know, so Jesus is comparing here Simon and this sinner woman, and says of them both that neither of them are capable of paying the debt that they owe. And he says, and both of them were forgiven the debt. Who will love the money lender more? You know, the, you know, the one who owed the money. And he, he rightly says, well, the one who was 
who had the larger debt canceled. Right. The one who is forgiven much loves much. And here she just said the one who loves much serves much. Law, 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 law. No gospel here. The passage itself, the one who is forgiven much loves much. Loved a thousand ways. That realizes everything she has is a gift given, is grace lavished, undeserved, unmerited, unexpected gift. Has to serve, has to give. One thousand gifts went out in the world January after that September in Guatemala. And all of the royalties from one thousand gifts got to go back to Pastor Saul in the Guatemala City dump and be the gift back and build an educational center and a resource center for those compassion kids. I am blessed. I can bless. This is happiness. This is emotional well-being and health. Being the gift back. The story of Saul and Sean and I and compassion. And you sitting here this morning. It's a lot like a story out of World War I, July 1941. Okay, and I don't mean to be rude. She, she meant World War II. Easy mistake to make. You know, if you've done any public speaking, you know it's real easy to confuse facts like this. So, you know, I do it all the time on the radio. Escape from Auschwitz. And the Nazis had a protocol that if one man escaped, ten men were executed. So in that morning, all the men were called out of the barracks, looking like bags of bones. One of the men who was in those ranks was a man by the name of Granouchai. And Granauchek was thinking what you and I would be thinking. Out of hundreds of men, I just have to be one of the ten that's not called. The Nazi commandant called the first name, the second name, the third name, the fourth name. Granauchek is thinking, I'm going to live. I'm going to live to get to see my wife and my kids. Live to see 42. The eighth name, the ninth name was called. And the tenth name was barked out, Granouchek. Your name. Granouchek fell out of ranks and he fell down on the ground, stripped of every shred of dignity, and he just begged, flat out begged, please no, not me. I have a wife, I have children, I'm young, please let me live. But we cried. Behind Granouchek, a man stepped out. Stepped out of ranks. And he stepped forward so all could see his face. Maximilian Kolbe. Maximilian Kolbe, a Christian who was known to give up his food rations to those less hungry than he was. A Christian known to give up his blanket to those less cold than he was. 
Maximilian Kolbe was known to these incarcerated Jews as the Christ of Auschwitz. Now I'm going to pause right there. Okay. Okay. This, I mean, great story, compelling story, sad story, pulls on your heartstrings story. You know, uh, Maximilian, uh, you know, the Christ of Auschwitz. Okay. Why would people call him the Christ of Auschwitz? Because his life is, well, you're going to find out. He steps in and is the substitute for this guy who was called out to be killed. And that is a great example of a Christian being martyred and suffering and loving and serving his neighbor at his own expense, the expense of his own life. It's going to be a great story. Will she then, from there, pull back and say, this Christ of Auschwitz looks and acts like his Savior, Jesus, who took the hit for us, bled and died on the cross for us, so that we would not face eternal death in the lake of fire and in hell. Is that what she's going to talk about? I don't think so. And he steps backward silently, takes off his cap. And before the commandant, he says, let me take his place. He is a wife and children. I'm not married. I'm not a father. I'm not young. I'm old. Take me. Maximilian Kolbe was only six years older than Grenache. And Grinauchek laying there on the dust in a July morning, he would later say, I could only thank him with my eyes. I was stunned. I could hardly grasp what was going on. And Kolbe, he was dragged off to a wire box like a dog kennel with the nine other men left to starve. Colby spent the next 14 days singing hymns and praying with those nine other men as one by one they starved to death. Only one month prior, Colby had written to his mother this letter. Dear mother, I am in the camp of Auschwitz Everything is well in my regard. Be tranquil about me and about my health. Because the good God is everywhere and provides for everything with love. That line in the letter. If a man in the midst of one of the most hideous scenarios known in the history of mankind can write a line like that. Not from a bad day at the office or a hard day with the kids, but from the death stench of Auschwitz. Yeah, if he can do it, then you should be able to give thanks too. This is all law. This is the kind of law that Tullian Chavidian was telling us about that he was preaching early in his preaching career. Christ paid it all for... You, you owe it to him to do something for him. She's not preaching the cross. She's preaching works righteousness. 
law, 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 law. And she's a mystic to boot. How can anyone deny that ultimate ironclad testimony? There is a good God everywhere. He's providing for everything with love. Actually, he provided for the forgiveness of our sins with his blood. One's an abstraction. The other's tangible and is actually good news. Can you see the difference? At the end of the 14 days, when Colby was still alive, the last man in that dog kennel, he was still singing. Still singing hymns. Still singing praise. That leper who returned to give praise to God. The Nazis then couldn't take the hymns anymore and gave Maximilian Kolbe a lethal injection. What's that line or that Matt Redman song you sang? Whatever lies before me, let me be singing when the evening comes. That was Maximilian Kolbe. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Worship his holy name. That's what Kolbe lived. The Nazis had tossed his body into a mass grave. And for 10,000 years, forevermore, singing praises to God, that's what Kolbe was. 10,000 reasons for my heart to find. Maximilian Kolbe was the first man in the history of Auschwitz to offer his life in place of another man. He was the last man. The man who saw that there is a good God everywhere and he provides for everything with love. And what happened to Granauchek? Granauchek would later be released from Auschwitz. He would live. His sons were all lost. Found his wife. Went home to a small home in Poland. And Grinauchek would put a rock out behind his house and affix on that rock a little brass plate. And on that brass plate were two words, Maximilian Kolbe. Grinauchek said this, because of Maximilian Kolbe, every breath that I take, everything that I do, every single moment is to me a gift. We... Right now, we are Grinalchek. My hope is that Grinalchek, because of the, quote, Christ of Auschwitz, repented of his sins and trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. Otherwise, every day that was given to him as a gift from the Christ of Auschwitz is just temporal. Because... If he didn't repent and trust Christ, the one whom Maximilian trusted in for the forgiveness of his sins, if he didn't trust Christ like Maximilian for the forgiveness of his sins, then all of his days that were literally purchased for him at the cost of Maximilian's life were for naught. 
because Maximilian was there witnessing and proclaiming Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And I want to hear that he lived out his days and saw them all as a gift. I want to hear that he was brought to penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. A Jew died for us. We've been sentenced to death. There was no way out. Our name was called. And somebody stepped out and said, I'll take your place. We've been flat out rescued and saved. All right, now here we have and referencing and making allusion to Christ's death on the cross. That's the Jew she's referring to who died for us. So now we have, you know, it, we definitely have an allusion to the cross. You know, it's on the scope. But listen carefully because this is kind of what Tully and Chavigian warned us about. Preaching law, gospel, law. You know, you, you preach the law, the gospel gets thrown in there, but now, oh, well, Jesus has done so much for you, you need to do you, you need to do so much for God, which is ultimately leaving people with law. It's a confusion of law and gospel. We continue. Granowczyk said, because of Maximilian Kolbe, I can't act frivolously. Because every single moment is pregnant with meaning. Because it was a gift to me from the one who died for me that I might breathe this breath, that I might act today, that I might embrace this moment. I could never take another moment for granted, he said. I had to make my life worth Kolbe dying for. Well, um, have you made your life worthy of Jesus dying for? Yeah, ouch. This is getting bad. When you have been given much, Granowczyk said, you have to give much. He spent his life traveling through Europe and North America, telling what Granowczyk, what Colby had done for him. It's our life about what Christ has done for us. Okay, what has he done? I'd have thousands released. In Jesus' name. We're the ones who had someone die for us that we might breathe this breath. It's all a gift. When you've been given much, you give much. When you've been forgiven much, you love much, right? It's what Pastor Paul had said in the slums of Guatemala City. He who has been loved much serves much. She was counted 1,000 gifts has to become the gift back. We're the lepers healed this morning. We're the sinners saved. We're the ones plucked out of the dump, saved from our own concentration camps, one saved from hell. Okay, good. I'm glad you mentioned hell. That is helpful. Someone died for us that we might live. How are we expressing thanksgiving for that? The one who gave everything. Again, notice she's not actually preaching the cross. She's talking about the cross and preaching you need to do something. Therefore, that's not gospel preaching. This is law preaching. And, you know, it's the kind of law preaching that, well, you know, literally could lead you to despair. In fact, I liken this kind of law preaching to the kind of, well, <clears throat> lectures you get from your mom. 
Are you all familiar with this particular lecture? I mean, not that I ever heard this one personally, but the, the, the lecture goes something like this. I can't believe I carried you in my body for nine months and gave birth to you, and I was in labor for 18 hours, and, and this is how you treat me. Yeah, that's what this type of, quote, preaching is like. Same, same qualitative message. Oh, Jesus has done so much for you. What are you doing? I can't believe, you know, that, 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 you know, Jesus goes and dies for you and, and you're not even serving much. Oh, oh, right. It's that this is, that's what the gist of this message is. We're not actually hearing Christ dying for our sins. We're not hearing good news. The good news is just the lead in to the pep talk, the obedience thing. You better get busy. Are you measuring up? Have you made your life worthy of Jesus dying for? Mm. Are we rescuing others from concentration camps? Poverty and oppression and hopelessness. So are well, if you're not changing the world and getting rid of poverty, you're clearly not thankful enough for what Jesus has done for you. And 1,000, 1,000, 10,000 million endless gifts. We've been given the giver. When you are filled with the crazy grace of endless gifts, you overflow out of this sanctuary to all those kids back there on those tables. You become the gift back. We are Granouchek. We can't be silent and unmoved. When you've experienced God's love, you express it tangibly. There's no other way. That leper was really made well, whole, emotionally and spiritually healthy. So, so, when? When he expressed thanks for the gift. When his thanksgiving moved him to come back to Jesus and do something, say something, act. And yet the text says that he was healed while he was on his way, and then he came back. The text says the exact opposite of what she's saying. To be the gift back to God with his thanksgiving. That's so-so. To be the gift back to God? What? But if he hadn't expressed his thanksgiving, would he have ever been made well? He would have stayed uh, that's weird. Um, the other ones were healed too. He would have stayed unwell without the expressed thanksgiving. But when the passion of Christ moves us, the Jew who loved us enough to die in our place, when we see everything, this day, this moment, it's all a gift. I didn't deserve it. A gift never stops being a gift. It's always meant to be given. Passed on. That reign of grace that never stops. When the passion of Christ moves us to compassion, to thanks, to give back, to be the... Again, she's not actually preaching the cross. It's this is your mom saying, I can't believe how much I've done for you and you still, you, you don't even clean your room without me asking kind of thing. That's what this is. To someone still trapped. Someone else still bound, 
still sick, still in need. You've been given release. How can I not give that gift of release to somebody else? You mean preach the forgiveness of sins to other people? Is that what you mean? Because that's not what you're describing. You keep talking about poverty and things like that. Break through the wall, our walls and their walls, with our tangible thanksgiving into the presence of God who says, when you give to the least of these, you're giving to me. You're expressing your thanksgiving. And that was a twisting of Matthew 25. Ay, ay, ay. Right now, can we go into his presence and thank him? All right. So that's the end of her uh, sermon lecture. I, I don't know what that was. Something similar to a, a motherly brow beating. Um, the gospel actually wasn't preached. It was mentioned as the thing that should be guilting you into doing something. Yeah, this is, the, again, this is the kind of stuff that really, talk about stealing your joy. There's no way to have joy in the midst of this. You just feel beat up after all of this because you know you're not living up. How do I make myself, my life worthy of Jesus dying for? What a terrible way to talk about the cross. Talk about Christian sanctification. There's nothing I can do to make my life worthy of Jesus dying for. Because scripture says that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for our sins. It's, I mean, I can't possibly begin to make my life worthy of Jesus dying for. I mean, even the language itself begins to ca confuse categories to where now I'm trying to pay back pay for a gift given rather than receive a gift given. It's a complete confusion of law and gospel from a lady who I showed earlier is steeped in Roman Catholic, mystic, erotic, mystic, you know, stuff. Extremely, extremely dangerous. When you, I mean, and what's the, all that about? Using it's basically chasing after these mystical experiences in order to get some sense of comfort, some sense of communion with God to make sure that things are okay, because the gospel really isn't enough. It's all about your obedience, and so the mystical path is a way of providing some kind of assurance, because the person doesn't really understand the proper distinction of law and gospel. That's really what's the root of this. So what did you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. For all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>